This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you always with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed co-host, Andy Bailey. It is Mailbag Day over at Hardwood Knox, which we know is everyone's favorite day because we've decided that it's everyone's favorite day. Before we get started, though, I just want to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes we really appreciate it. Um, those reviews just help us a bunch. And even if you have some feedback that you want to give, we're always amenable to that as long as it's presented in a semi-coherent and respectful manner. But again, please rate, subscribe, um, and review us on iTunes. And if you want to talk to us on Twitter, Andy is at... Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Andrew D. Bailey. I am at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox, and our parent host, MBA Math, is at MBA underscore math. And as a final housekeeping note, there is, by the time you listen to this, it might be over, but there is still time as of now for you to send your screenshots of you rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes to enter to win a free MBA Math t-shirt. We will be announcing those over the winner of that over the weekend, and we just released some fire designs over at MBA Math. We have a Pick Your Goat series between LeBron James and Michael Jordan, and if you're trying to put anybody else in that conversation, then I, I don't really know what to tell you. We just dropped a nice James Harden shirt. There will be more on the way in time for the holidays, but again, send us your screenshots of rating, reviewing, subscribing to us on iTunes, and you'll be entered to win. It's free. It won't cost you anything, except maybe 30 seconds on iTunes. With all of that being said, how are you doing today, Andy? Are you as excited for Mailbag Day as me? I'm always excited for Mailbag Day. I'm extra excited now. Did, did I hear super duper incredibly esteemed before my name? I was thinking, I said super <laughs> duper last time too, and now I added incredibly, so I'm going to try and add a word 
every episode and then it's gonna like the intro for you is eventually just gonna take five <laughs> minutes <laughs> i'm all for it i'll sit i'll sit here and listen to as many superlatives as you can throw at me you deserve them with those stat threads that you're throwing out on twitter during law school so like <laughs> let's just give our listeners a backstory andy's going to graduate law school soon and i'm pretty sure he does nothing but tweet about the nba in law school so i mean one that's really ridiculously impressive and two I guess if you're looking for a career path, you could go to law school and still enjoy consuming the MBA at the same time, apparently. Yeah. I just told somebody the other day, if if my law professors ever figured out my Twitter handle, um, I, I'm sure they would be at least a little bit disappointed. Because all those things are time-stamped, and there are definitely <laughs> a lot of, lots of tweets coming out during their classes. You would think, um, I mean, you have 30K followers on Twitter. You would think, like... Maybe someone in your law school or even a professor, like maybe someone would stumble across this and like put it together. Students definitely have. And the other day, one of my professors was talking about her Twitter handle and I I opened it up while she was talking about it in class. And I was like just about to click follow and I was like, oh, no, I I cannot. (laughs) That's what you should do during like your last semester or something like or your final like two weeks just to see if they would notice just as a test run, because at that point it won't matter. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good call. Um, but yeah, uh, I am excited for Mailbag Day, like you said. Um, I'm just going to jump right in and get started. I feel like Sham Mohil, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, is is almost like a third co-host on Mailbag Day at this point. I think he's had a question in here for our last three. Mailbag. Every single Mailbag I think he's popped up on. They've all nice. been about the Detroit Pistons too. And he writes. He actually writes about the Pistons for Piston Powered. Uh, he also writes for Real Ball Insider. Um, Look, but he's he got at, a shout out without even becoming a patron at NBA Math, unless he did become a patron, in which case we owe him for that too. Maybe he <laughs> he needs to tweet us like a phonetic um, version of his name so that now we can pronounce it right on Mailbag Day. Yeah, it seems like I definitely need to get that last name right. Hopefully, I did. Um, his handle is at Sham S H A M Sham God S H A M M God. He says, this has been discussed on NBA Twitter for a while now. We know Avery Bradley is a great defender, but why don't his numbers show it? This is such an interesting question, and I think he asked this as CBS Matt's Moore was going kind of down the Avery Bradley rabbit hole, and I ended up writing very loosely about this the other day. Avery Bradley's teams have not been better with him on the floor defensively since 2013-2014, so that's Celtics team. Um, I The symptoms for me is this year especially, um, the Pistons' most used lineup, which is Bradley, Drummond, Harris, Jackson, and Johnson, is terrible collectively on defense. They're allowing 115 points per 100 possessions, which would by far and away rate as the worst mark in the league. And the other thing is that he kind of seems like a sacrificial lamb to me. We can talk about how he's not hes not the greatest team defender, and while he's really good at poking the ball away at certain times, he, there are some times where he's just not aggressive and it doesn't look like he uses enough fouls, and I'm not sure if that's just because he gets tunnel vision for the assignment he's on, but it's, it's not an issue of him just always tackling the best defensive assignment. It seems that he's just always on the floor, against the best rival offensive units possible. And when your playing time is going to kind of mirror that, I think that could affect your splits. And we went through this. It was Matt Moore at CBS Sports again who went through it with Kawhi Leonard. 
last year about how defenses were kind of taking him like out of the def- uh, offenses, excuse me, were taking him out of the defensive equation. It's not the same thing with Bradley because when you watch, these offenses aren't going out of their way to pull him away from the play. It's almost self-inflicted because coaches, and this this happened in Boston to my memory, and it's just this one's the eye test. And I think a lot of Bradley's mystique is built on the eye test. He just always seems to be on the floor not only against some of the best scorers, but these dangerous offensive units in general. Yeah, I think I agree with everything that you said there. I, I think there are certain defenders that, that that is true of, and they can still sort of overcome that and still show up and, and, and have their defensive rating be better when, the, when he's on the floor. Um, so I, I think maybe his reputation has been slightly inflated over the last couple of years, but I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Um, my answer on this was I, I've, I've come back to this quite a bit in the last couple of years because I honestly didn't know it until somebody pointed it out to me. Um, but basketball references, uh, they have an, an entire page that's just sort of an explanation of box plus minus. Mm-hmm. And of course, box plus minus is split into defensive and offensive. And, uh, I'm just, it's pretty short, so I'm just going to read what they say about defensive box plus minus. Um, so for just a little background, box plus minus, of course, is like an adjusted plus minus that, that figures basically every box score stat into the equation to give you sort of a, a better picture um, of the impact that player makes on the floor. And what they say is there are limitations in all box score stats. If the box score doesn't measure a particular contribution, a box score based metric can only approximate that contribution. This is not a great hindrance on the offensive side as nearly everything of importance on offense is captured by the box score, only missing things like screen setting. But on defense, the box score is quite limited. Blocks, steals, and rebounds, along with minutes and what little information offensive numbers yield about defensive performance are all that is available. Such critical components of defense as positioning, communication, and the other factors that make Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan a lead on defense can't be captured, unfortunately. What does this mean? Box plus minus is good at measuring offense and solid overall, but the defensive defensive numbers in particular should not be considered definitive. Look at the defensive values as a guide, but don't hesitate to discount them when a player is well-known as a good or bad defender. Um... Basically, and, and Clay Thompson is another one who fits into this discussion, who's a great, has a reputation as a great on-ball defender, but hasn't been good in defensive box plus minus in years. Same can be said of Avery Bradley. So I think a lot of what they do, um, it just doesn't translate to numbers. And I, I, don't, I don't know if we'll ever reach a point <laughs> with defense because there's so much information out there now, and we still haven't really figured out how to capture exactly the impact of a player defensively just through numbers. So that is that is certainly one area where I think the eye test crowd is always going to have sort of a strong foothold is um, in analyzing and, and breaking down defense. I would agree with everything you just said there as well. And I, I, I actually – I also agree, uh, even though that's included in the word everything, Bradley's reputation probably is a little bit overrated because a lot of the stuff he does – uh, is predicated on his on-ball performance, it seems like. And I don't want to take that away because there are some... I mean, you're talking about a guy who's not really a point guard and he chases around point guards all the time and he makes life easier on his teammates. Uh, we've seen it with Reggie Jackson this year. Uh, I think Reggie Jackson even told uh, the Verticals' Chris Mannix that he jumped for joy when he found out the Pistons traded 
Ravy Bradley over the summer. So there's that aspect that I don't think can necessarily be quantified, and that's important. But team defenses can be really tough, too. And we've seen Andre Drummond mm-hmm. struggle with it in years past uh, on kind of how to react when you're you're in the pick and roll. Like if you're trying to really be aggressive, but you also have to make sure you're protecting the rim, It's you. it makes you appreciate the guys that are so good at handling all these different facets at once. And I just don't think that Bradley's necessarily that guy. He's a good one-on-one defender. And again, that's impressive, but there were times in Cleveland where I think you could say, especially during the playoffs, that Kyrie Irving looked like a good one-on-one defender, someone who could survive mm-hmm. in space, because that's probably the easier part of defense when you're zeroed in on that singular assignment. That's just one thing to kind of have a knock against him, but he's built his 3 and D label off of the eye test, and I, again, I think the fact that you can at least feel comfortable throwing him on point guards and some of the toughest perimeter scores in the game. Yep. I think that pretty much wraps that one up. Um, our next question is from Joe Montgomery and his handle is at Joe M O N T G O M E. He, so he just went Montgomery on the, uh, I respect that. <laughs> his question is, this is, this is a really tough one to me. Uh, I think there is a lot of, uh, candidates he says who do you like for most improved player aaron gordon andre drummond victor oladipo or someone else i i wouldn't pick drummond just because i think a lot of his improvement has been kind of in the iq and effort department and i'm not going to reward someone with an official honor for that that if we want to just recognize that he's been better at free throws but like these aren't if you look at his numbers these aren't like crazy relative to what he's done in the past, it just seems like he's having a more profound impact on a, on a good basketball team this year. Uh, this is going to be a hedge, but I think you give it to whoever ends up on the better team of Gordon Oladipo or Kristaps Porzingis. And even to narrow it down further, and I know Gordon might have been one of the two primary candidates at this point, but you're, you're looking for the guy lately over the half half decade or so if you look at the winners the guy who's made that transition from fringe star or promising prospect into actual all-star actual superstar and Kristaps Porzingis would fit that bill better than anyone and I think that's by far I'm I'm honestly amazed I looked this up yesterday and I'm amazed because Kristaps Porzingis plays power forward and he's contesting fewer shots at the rim noticeably so than he did last year if you look at the league average that's allowed at the rim, no one in the NBA is saving more value at the iron than Kristaps Porzingis. And to me, for a power forward to be doing that is just super impressive because of how defensive has tried to pull him outside the paint, and he's contested a lot of threes this year too. That would be, in a vacuum, my pick. But I really do think we probably need to recognize Oladipo because the Pacers have been, particularly on offense, better than expected. I don't know who it's eventually going to go to, to be honest. Um, and I, that's a terrible hedge. But my, my pick for just based on the player would be Kristaps Porzingis. If I'm trying to look at which team is going to be better by season's end, and knowing that this probably will factor into how the voting process unfolds, I'd be more inclined to go Victor Oladipo there. So this, that's, <laughs> I almost started laughing when you said I'm not going to go with Andre Drummond because – that's who I am going to pick, and I'm trying to find something. Oh, we're going to have words, aren't quick. we? This is going to be fun. Okay, I found it. Oh, no, I didn't. 
this is this is good. Okay, live well then, can, let me at least um, uh, let me lay down my case against him then. Okay, I've got it. I've got right, it. Then go ahead. <laughs> no, I don't. Yes, okay. I do. All right. Okay, sorry. Peek behind the curtain anyway. for all the listeners. This is fantastic. Yeah. You know, F. What was his name? F. U. Bastard or something is not going to be happy because he hates <laughs> that this podcast is unscripted. So we apologize to him if he's still listening. Yeah. And I'm sure he is. I, I bet you he's one of our most loyal listeners. He's hate listening, which is we appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take any listens I can get. Um, okay, here's the here's just a few reasons I really like what Andre Drummond is doing. I I think I can point to two very specific skills where he has just like become a new player entirely. Um, through those first five seasons in the league. He took almost five free throw attempts per game and made 38%, 38.1%. It's, it's like unfathomably bad from the free throw line. For him to randomly like turn that around and become a 63% shooter this year, and this, this is another question that Sham asked us a couple of weeks ago was, is this sustainable? And back then I said, no, I just, there's just too much evidence to the contrary. But now he's 20 games into the season and it's holding, and he's taking almost five free throw attempts a game, 63%. I mean, that's a that is a massive turnaround. Um, he's also this this one's kind of surprising to me. He's posting the highest rebounding percentage he has in his career, and he's already been one of the best rebounders in the league basically since the day he first suited up, um, averaging a career high in rebounds per game too, 15.2. But I think the biggest thing for me is the passing. Um, Fair. for the first four or five years of his career, I would, I mean, he was almost in like Hassan Whiteside territory in terms of guys who just flat out do not pass the ball. Um, his first four seasons, he averaged 0.6 assists a game that jumped up to 1.1 last year. This year he's at 3.7. I mean, I never in my wildest dreams could have imagined that Andre Drummond would enter like the passing bin, big man category. That's that's numbers that are in like the same realm as Marcus Saul, three point seven assists a game. Like that, just I never ever could have imagined that he would be that kind of a player. Um, I think throwing out not not that this is improvement, but throwing out the post ups <laughs> has certainly helped him. I, I think there's just so many things going with him right now, and um, and I think there's there's really good cases too for Aaron Gordon and Victor Oladipo, and as you mentioned, Kristaps Porzingis. Who wasn't mentioned in the question? He's another one that I wouldn't I wouldn't mind at all if he won it. But I just feel like there's very real um, improvement that I can look at with Drummond. Do you want to hear? And this would be in support of Drummond. And it's the thing that it's it's an improvement, and I think just the biggest one, like the rebounds, his permanent rebound rate is actually down, and he's getting more playing time than ever and that tends to happen when you increase the volume but that doesn't my, my point being is that it just doesn't astound me I think he does a good job forcing some steals for a big guy but I've I've always kind of thought that the, the free throw percentage thing is just incredible and I was on board with his, his improvement at the beginning of the year the the passing I, I get it and the stat I'm going to throw out now is just like it, it's kind of like wow uh last year he passed on 8.6 percent of his post-ups and he had an assist percentage of 1.1 this year, (laughs) this year, get ready for this. He's passing on 25.5% of his post-ups. So almost three times as many. And his assist percentage has jumped to 4.3%, which still isn't 
incredibly high, but you're looking at a guy who's using uh, per NBA.com tracking data 2.4 post-ups per game, and that's down from 6.9 last year. So when you look at that dramatic decrease to see your assist percentage kind of go up that much, and the, the pass percentage especially, that's fantastic. But that's an IQ improvement to me. There were always points at his career, I would say with the exception of last season, where he really just seemed to fall in love with those junky, long, mid-range, whatever you want to call them, like hook shots. You looked at him and said, wow, he can do a better job passing out of double teams. And it's kind of like what we go through with Kristaps Porzingis, I think, right now. People criticize his passing numbers, but he's done a much better job passing out of traffic. And sometimes the Knicks make these second and third and fourth passes that create these shots he'll never receive true credit for. But Andre Drummond has has been kind of towing that line uh, for a while now, or at least at a bunch of different stages of his career. And for the amount of doubles he sees or just for the amount of, like, magnetic pull he still has in the post, even when he's inefficient, I don't see that as this, wow, we really need to commend him for this. We do, but it's an IQ improvement and something that he should have been doing long before now. And I don't, even if we want to just, like, bask in this revelation, again, it, it's impressed me, and I, I'm still shocked when I see some of the passes he makes. So, again, he deserves I say we, uh I say we should commend IQ improvement. I'm not saying we shouldn't commend it, but like you're looking at, don't you think like across the board improvement matters more? Or, or again, if we're saying this, we're basically using a lot of anecdotal evidence as well. And what's also going to help Drummond is that the Pistons might contend for home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. But like, uh, look at Kristaps Porzingis for one. This is his first year as the alpha, and I was of the mind that he might not make a leap because he didn't have Carmelo Anthony to take offensive pressure well, off him and the Knicks might the not argument use there is the argument there is he just has a bigger role but and he's still efficient though like that's i know i i mean i'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not saying i would vote against Kristaps porzingis necessarily but i think the argument that someone could make is he, he could have done this last year if he had that role it's not necessarily as much improvement for well, him is that it's just stepping into a bigger role. I find with Kristaps and Victor Oladipo, because I don't want to give – there's still a chance that I might pick Victor Oladipo over Kristaps. We're only at the quarter pole of the season mark. I think what those two are doing is just a little bit more impressive because it's their first time in these really high-volume roles, and we've seen them improve their efficiency in certain areas. And in Victor Oladipo's case, like – uh, we, we've seen him do like more of this nasty work on pull-ups and in isolations and off handoffs than we've seen in the past. That's all new. Uh, with Kristaps Porzingis, he's just hitting a ton of contested shots, learning how to shoot over guys. He's slowly, gradually understanding when he should put the ball on the floor because the guys in front of him are a little bit too tall, and he's passing better out of double teams. They're just doing a lot of new stuff that we haven't necessarily been waiting on, and this with Drummond just feels like, oh, okay, finally this is happening. And I don't want to... This is the problem with having these arguments is you inevitably have to detract from someone's performance. Yeah, and his passing sure. has been spectacular. Again, those post numbers, thats a he's passing out of the post like almost th- three times as much as he was last season in terms of frequency. That's fantastic. But I also feel like it's something we've been waiting on for too long um, f- to, to recognize it over what Oladipo is doing, what Kristaps is doing, maybe even what Aaron Gordon's doing in Orlando as well. Uh, my last point on Drummond is among players with at least 200 minutes, the only – and this is kind of funny because I just read that excerpt from Basketball Reference saying you can throw out defensive box plus minus when you want to. But 
The only three guys with a better defensive box plus minus than Drummond so far this season are Salah Medri, Ekpe Udo, and Lucas Nogueira, who all have played significantly less than Drummond. And then just to make this argument or this discussion uh, even more difficult to sort out, I just pulled up Aaron Gordon's uh, basketball reference page. Oh, his defensive box plus minus is awful. Well, I'm 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 actually going to try to make a little case for him. Um, <laughs> his previous career high in field goal percentage, forty seven point three. This year he's shooting fifty one. Uh, career high in three point percentage, twenty nine point six. This year he's shooting forty three point eight. Career high rebound, six and a half. This year he's at eight point four. Assists, one point nine. This year at two point two. Steals, zero uh, point eight. This year he's at one point one. And blocks, zero point seven. This year he's at zero point nine. Um, and then points, of course. Career high twelve point seven this year. He's at eighteen point six. So um, neither one of us picked him, but like I said when we first started this this discussion, this is going to be a really hard award to pick this year. I think. I think there's gonna there's gonna end up being between three and five guys that could really deserve it, and we've already talked about four of them. I don't know who else is gonna. Yeah. Are we missing anyone that could come out of the woodwork? Um. Not to, that I can think of off the top of my head. We need to have a quarter pull award show. Ennis Cantor, just for your sake. Oh, there's going to be some stuff dropped about Ennis Cantor in one of the questions that was asked later. So, just say. Good. I, 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 as a jazz fan who was like, um, not thrilled about the way he left the Jazz. He is like rapidly becoming one of my favorite players this season. I just love Ennis Cantor. Mostly for his Twitter trolling of LeBron James, but that's a different subject. He's been, um, when you look at value saved at the rim, he's been a plus rim protector this year, which is it's which is was crazy. hard for me to kind of wrap my head around. Yeah, he's been amazing. Uh, anyway, Patrick Murray, uh, at Patrick Murray 07, asks us, greatest three-point shooter of all time, Michael Finley, <laughs> which I assume is tongue in cheek. I was about to say, is he and Reggie Miller or Kyle Korver? The obvious answer is uh, isn't in there. Of course, like Reggie Miller and Kyle Korver are; those are all three probably like top ten to fifteen shooters of all time. But the no-brainer answer uh, is and has been for like two or three years, Stephen Curry. Um, among players who've taken at least a thousand threes in their careers, Curry has the highest true shooting percentage. It's point six one seven. Can you guess who's second? Um, I'm going to say Kyle Korver. Steve Novak. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> 0.616. But here's what's funny about that. Uh, Novak has 1,337 career three-point attempts. Curry has 4,569. The difference in volume is just insane. And then my other stat before I throw it to you. I just looked this up the other day, and they, the Warriors have maybe played a game or two since I did this, so maybe it's just slightly out of date. Um, but at the time, Curry had hit 1,984 threes in his career, and only 1,206 of them were assisted. So meaning almost 40% of the threes he's hit in his career have been unassisted. For him to have oh, geez. the best true shooting percentage among guys with all those attempts and have almost half of his shots unassisted is just insane. I mean, it's it's very well known that it's easier to shoot off the catch than to create and try to shoot with somebody on you. Um, it, his his shooting numbers defy all logic. 
And like I said, they have for three or four years now. I, I mean, I don't think there's anyone else even close in this conversation. No, I, I don't think there is either. That's like a I'm, I'm even like, what was he talking about? Who's the second greatest shooter? Maybe who would you go there? Um, I was not prepared for that, but I will. Um, man, that's tough. I almost so there's, want there's to a go... lot of guys that always go ahead. Sorry. I think Reggie Miller has a, has an argument. Um, Steve Nash has always had an argument to me. He's another guy who that I looked his up too. um, Nash, basically half of his shots were unassisted, half of his threes, which is even higher than Steph's, of course. And he still has a career true shooting percentage over 60. Um, Brent Berry shows up every time I do research. Um, John Stockton shows up every time. I, I think these guys are all in the conversation. If I had to, if I was forced to pick one, um, I think I'm going to go with Steve Nash. Just because I'm, I'm very impressed with somebody who can shoot that high of a percentage when half of his shots are created for himself. That's an interesting pick. I would probably be more inclined. And he's basically, one more thing on Nash, he's basically 50-40-90 for his career. I mean, wow. I mean, that that's, you know. His, his career field goal percentage is 49, three-point percentage 42.8, free throw percentage 90.4. I, I always wondered what he'd be like if he would have shot more in his career, though. Because the volume argument kind of works against him a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he still had almost 4,000 three-point attempts. That's also fair. What does that rank all time since you have that pulled up? Uh, in attempts? Yeah. Let me, let me see one second. It'll take about two seconds. I think I would go with – I almost want to go Kyle Korver – as the second, and I, it, it might, I think he has a strong argument too. He's just a pinball. Like he, he's just a pinball. Yeah. Nash uh, was. Let me see. Twenty seventh all time in total attempts. Yeah. All right. That's up there then. I mean, top twenty five. Kyle Korver. Kyle Korver's tenth for what it's worth. That makes my time. my case even stronger. Here, I'm going to share. Cor- I, Korver is one I looked up the other day too. Um, guess what percentage of his threes have been assisted? 90 96 <laughs> and this is this is even funnier um he had two entire seasons in which a hundred percent of his threes were assisted which hopefully that doesn't take away what he is as a shooter after i gave that whole spiel about how i respect guys who can create off the dribble i think there's a lot to be said for being able to constantly move the way he does throughout a possession and um, I mean, he is a master of the catch and shoot to be running full speed off a pin down screen or whatever other else kind of action he has and catch and shoot. Um, he's remarkable at that. That, yeah, I, I, well, I there's so many good, ca- it's so hard after Stephen Curry because I think Stephen Curry's just, it's Stephen Curry. Yeah. He's in one. his own league. Yeah. So most of these other guys. So I was doing a lot of research on shooting and, um, most of the great, great three-point shooters are over 90% in terms of uh, how often they were assisted. So that shouldn't be a huge knock on Kyle Korver. But, um, again, I'm impressed with somebody who can do it both off the catch and off the dribble. So There's definitely an element of interest. It sounds like we both went deaf. 
Yeah. Neither of us are and gonna I'm have going, Ray I'm Allen going... in the convo either. I mean, he's got to be top five, right? Yeah, for sure. Couldn't Clay Th- Clay Thompson it's just, could also it's come so... into play here too? Yeah, Clay Thompson could probably be in there too. Uh, he's he's a career forty percent from three, obviously. 90 almost 94 percent of his shots have been assisted and i actually just looked this up the other only one of his threes this season has been unassisted the thing with him is he's actually 38th all time in true shooting percentage among players with a thousand um anyway like like we've said a couple times this is this is a difficult thing to pull apart and just pick one guy after you pick steph of course um after that it's pretty tough 100% 100% agree. Okay, the next question. Let's see here. This one is Von Gotti at G underscore DVB. He asks, is Ben Simmons the greatest of all time? Uh, emo- goat emoji. Um, and will Markel be redshirted this season? Um, I mean, Ben Simmons, <laughs> LeBron James said Ben Simmons, or he told Ben Simmons early on, I believe was the quote from SI.com's Lee Jenkins, that Simmons has a chance to be better than him. And LeBron is one of the two best players, and I think the best player of all time. So I guess that means we have to call Ben Simmons a goat in training. Yeah, I uh, I get why the, the LeBron James comparisons happen with Ben Simmons. Um I, I agree with you, LeBron James. To me, LeBron James is the greatest player in NBA history, and and comparing anybody with him this early is kind of scary. Um, he certainly has a chance to be the best rookie ever. Which I mean, even saying that is crazy. I I looked this up before we started recording. He's averaging eighteen point six points, nine point four rebounds, seven point two assists, and two point three steals. Um, Forget rookies. No one in NBA history, regardless of experience, has averaged 18, 9, 7, and 2 for an entire season. Um, yeah, that's, in, that's absolutely absurd. I mean, absurd. it's just been absurd. So uh, he's on track to be one of the greats. I, th- I think it's probably safe to say that. And if this is what he's doing as a rookie, like if, if his career numbers after five or six years are like 20, 10, and 8, um, People are going to start talking about him as, as one of the greatest of all time. It's crazy to start talking about it this early, but um, that's the kind of player I think the Sixers have on their hands. And I don't think that's a stretch. The The big thing for me watching is, is he going to improve as a jump shooter? Because even when there were questions about LeBron James's jump shot, which there are not now, we there was even he said he's not going to do the – NBA's three-point competition. So we're sitting here now, 15 years into his career, yeah. wondering whether he could, like, should he participate in the NBA's three-point competition if invited? That's absurd to have that. Simmons just doesn't shoot threes. But most of his... Yeah, he was he, never as... LeBron was never as bad a shooter as Simmons appears to be. No, so the fact that Simmons is this good without any semblance of a jumper, fantastic, impressive. The stuff he does in midair really throws defenses off and kind of helps create space because they're all of a sudden collapsing since this guy's in the air but he's able to throw these passes that just make it to these open cutters and shooters and the the Sixers have surrounded him with 
uh, almost the perfect roster at this point, uh, I would say. So uh, it just to me is, one, can he keep this up? And I don't think it's a stretch to say that he can. We're at the quarter pole of the season. Like some of this stuff mm-hmm. that looks like a breakout or an anomaly, we have to start accepting as a, as a new normal. I, I want to see, though, whether he's going to improve as a, a jump shooter. And this is just strictly in the greatest of all time conversation, or if we're talking about him going down as one of the best players in NBA history, that, let's say top 25, top 30, top 50, whatever you want to say, you have to be mm-hmm. super ambitious because look at, look at what LeBron has done as a jump shooter. LeBron James is shooting 42.5% from beyond the arc this season. And this is a guy who entered the league. He shot 29% in his first year. And we're fast-forwarding um, – 15 years and he's basically doubled his output per game on three pointers and his accuracy has climbed by 13.5 percentage points. That's the type of you, we look for players who they're already showing signs of greatness, but you look for them to even improve and build upon that. And that's just what I'm waiting for with Simmons. The only thing that seems to be standing between him would be a jump shot. Here's my follow-up question on this. Who do you think is better right now between him and Joel Embiid? I still think it's Joel Embiid seems to kind of just... I understand ball handlers are going to innately have a larger impact on the game, and he's more of a passer than Embiid is. But just look at the Sixers' on-off numbers with Embiid. They play like a contender with him on the floor, and I, I believe when I was looking this up the other day that their numbers are stronger when he plays alone than when... Simmons plays alone and the numbers they're still not great it seems like they're both kind of codependent a little bit on each other and the Sixers have been absolute fire when Covington and Embiid and Simmons are on the floor together but right now at this moment uh, if you're looking for someone to kind of anchor a team it's Embiid and it will eventually be Simmons I think he's the better building block but right here right now I don't think we can say that he's better than Joel Embiid and a lot of that has to do with what happens on the defensive end too Simmons is is more switchable but like Embiid is just impenetrable at the rim and he's even shown some for a big man he's shown that he can sometimes survive in space and speaking of Covington Embiid and Simmons when those three guys share the floor uh I looked this up the other day so this is another thing that could be slightly out of date now but they're playing like a 63 win team when those three guys are on the floor together and that's I figured that out using NBA Math's FATS calculator, which just inputs the team's four factors and compares it to hundreds of teams across history. Um, so when those three guys are on the floor, it's it's like a title contending type of a team, which is insane that they're already at this point in the process. It's just crazy. Um, that they have I the process worked. That's all I can say. <laughs> Anything else on the Sixers? Um, what was the other question was, will Markel Fultz just end up being a oh, shirt this year? Oh, that's right. I, I forgot mean, about that one. We, I'm not around this team, and it just, we, the, as far as we know, he's just going to continue to be reevaluated, and people have seen him shooting. I, I don't think he'll be redshirted, but if they're going to make the playoffs anyway and they see kind of what Embiid and Simmons have turned into after missing, you know, Embiid missed two seasons, two and a half basically, and Simmons missed one, uh, maybe they'll make that call, and they're just – they're notoriously mysterious when it comes to these things. They were just so we didn't. Re- I don't think the situation anyone, no one knew how dire or serious it was necessarily until Fultz's agent was talking to Adrian Wojnarowski over at ESPN.com. So we could find out that this is something he eventually needs surgery for. Like maybe he tore a lit. Like what? I I don't know. I'm I'm gonna say 
I, I don't even know what to say. I'm just going to say no because how does this happen this often? It happened with Nerlens Noel. It happened with Embiid. It happened with Simmons, and now it's going to happen with Fultz. Like, what are the chances to have that happen four times in basically a half decade? It is crazy. Um, if they're if they're like knocking on the door of home court advantage by the time he's ready to come back, or um, it's going to be a tough call for them because I don't think he's going to help them a lot this year. They're going to and be, like you said, they're going to trade seeing, him for a star when LeBron James comes, <laughs> and maybe it would preserve his trade value if nobody. Nobody saw him for the rest of the year. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, it's a really tough call. I, I think they will be my, – my answer would be they'll just be abundantly cautious about it. Um, they should be. It, they started out reckless, it seemed like. Yeah, which is kind of weird because all the guys you just named, it was like they were abundantly cautious with them. And so randomly they were they were pushy with faults. It seemed very out of character. And maybe it's because of the – the regime change with Colangelo. Maybe he was just more aggressive with this kind of stuff. No, oh, God. Did, did you see Adam Silver was basically just like blowing smoke up the Sixers' collective that, asses the other day? That was like disgusting. That interview, I, so I was watching that game on League Pass with the Sixers broadcast. That that whole segment was like cringeworthy almost. I just I compliment the Sixers and compliment the process, but you know, like Sam Hinkie is is mostly responsible for this and you can yeah, like, go they, ahead they gotta acknowledge that go ahead and factor in the misses that he had like just just go ahead i mean jaleel okafor criticize him yeah. for that, but look at what you ended up with anyway well that's the whole point of the process is you give your you give yourself enough shots that you can have misses like that they they have and i think we can definitively say this we don't know what martel Fultz is going to be they have two guys who could at the same time end up being top five players in the NBA because of Sam Hankey. They're not yeah. in a position to have Embiid or Simmons otherwise. And I, we have to uh, basically – we don't have to basically. We have to definitively compliment Hankey for even making the Embiid pick at number three because he had those issues. He had those injury problems. Everybody knew it. He was talked about as kind of a number one overall prospect. But to slip to three – like that's not really that big of a fall and he could have gone a different direction just because you're trying to basically prove yeah we talk about yes he had the flexibility to go after Joel Embiid just like he had the flexibility um to make the trade for Nerlens Noel because you think he's o- operating essentially on this open-ended timeline but I don't I don't think we could say that you already had Nerlens Noel on the team and you went for Embiid anyway so I yeah. you have to give him credit for that pick as well yeah, he definitely deserves credit for that. Um, it, it's it's obviously Sam Hinkie's work that has gotten him to this point. I, there, there's very little you can point to that Colangelo's done that's that's put him here. Um, the Reddick signing was nice, and but this is exactly the kind of moves that Hinkie would have made when it was time to that, sort of turn the page too. I that's the only thing I wonder about is when would he have officially turned the page? That would have been my only like. Quam. Would he have made the J.J. Redick signing? Maybe because it was only one year, but he wasn't necessarily doing things. Like, they had to force Elton Brand on him when uh, Colangelo yeah. first joined the organization. So, you know, I just I, – I'm skeptical. I still think, like, even if he hadn't made super win-now moves, like we said, the three guys that are the reason they're so good, Covington, Embiid, and Simmons, those are all hinky guys. Oh, uh, w- without question. Like, it's, yeah. it's just – it's not even – 
it, it's I just that whole as like what Adam Silver was saying, it was just like, it was weird. It, it was yeah. come on. It was he was unnecessarily forced out in my opinion. I'm actually surprised that he doesn't have like another gig in the NBA yet. Yeah, at least is like there's going to be a think... few openings this off season. So yeah. I would say at least as an assistant GM, somebody should should hire we him on. We should have heard that he was consulting for somebody. I yeah, just, I... for sure. All right, we've got another question from Kiefer John at K-E-E-F-F-E-R John. Um, it seems as though the Clippers are going to move on from DeAndre Jordan. What trades are out there that you think would be good for both sides? Um, I think it was Joe Vardone. Let's see. Joe Varden, yeah, it was him, if you're talking about the Cavs. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Varden of Cleveland.com, uh, he talked about the possibility of Tristan Thompson and the Nets pick for DeAndre Jordan. 100% I'm no. actually – you're 100% no? Yes. For which side? The, the Cavs. <laughs> I, I'm, like, torn on this because I think he would be a really good fit with LeBron, and uh, he's a good fit with Kevin Love. Um, I know I just said in the last podcast we had that I would most likely want to keep the Nets pick because I want a contingency plan for when uh, LeBron, it almost seems inevitably, leaves at this point. But that's a really interesting starting lineup to me. As of right now, the Nets would probably have a top seven pick. You're giving up a top seven pick for Jordan, who turns 30 in July, who could be a free agent. I guess you might end up paying him less annually. But I want the top seven pick or someone better than Jordan. And let's face it, the Nets are just getting destroyed by injuries right now. Russell, Jeremy Lin, Alan Crabb is being healthy. They could end up falling into the top five, and they still have a chance to get lottery luck. I'm not – if they're – unless they end up having a top 20 record or maybe top 18 – excuse me, maybe like top 22 or something, I'm not even thinking about giving up that pick for DeAndre Jordan. We we talked about this in the previous pod – the trade that I would be looking for would be something like, can you get – like if the Hornets kind of just implode, can you swing a deal where maybe you get Kit Gilchrist and Kemba Walker? Or maybe it's just this huge deal where, yes, you give up Isaiah Thomas in the process as well, but they're looking for a teardown and you get Kit Gilchrist, Nicholas Batum, and Kemba Walker. Like that's – like those are the players that you need to be targeting to really help you beat Golden State. I – you could easily say that DeAndre Jordan would be a better player for the Cavaliers than – Tristan Thompson, but I just I'm for the Nets pick. No, it it doesn't do it for me. Is there any argument that LeBron might be more willing to stay if they made a win now move like that? I I do think so because it would because it would show that the organization is not kind of just tiptoeing this weird line. Because if you make the move now, no, LeBron isn't going to give you a guarantee. But it's it's a little bit different from waiting to see if he stays and then making the move because it's almost like when he came back in the first place during 2014 free agency is he wouldn't guarantee them he was coming back and he made them go out and make room to sign him anyway. And they, they showed that sign of good faith. They made that play of good faith. This would be another one. I don't – I'm probably against moving it again unless the return is demonstrative, like just a no-brainer. Like I – I'm even trying – we went through this. Like, If someone became available toward the trade deadline that we didn't expect and the Cavs can swing for the fences and get this top 20 player and other stuff and it just works out for them, then yeah. But even though I would lean towards keeping the pick, I understand the slant. You do have LeBron James. You can try and go all in now 
and in turn, I do think there would be something to be said for trading that pick from a goodwill perspective. I don't know if it's the smartest long-term decision because he could decide that he wants to go to Houston or Philly or Los Angeles or please, oh, please, San Antonio anyway over the summer. But I, I think it would only help their case. Think about the uh, – this is my last thing on this. Um, How do you feel about that though, by the way? Your own question. Oh, if it would help LeBron stay? Yeah. I, I think it would – it can't hurt. Um, <laughs> the, the last thing I will say on this is when Isaiah Thomas gets back, if he's, if he's like 90% of what he was last season, I think that makes it easier to put to, – to start Dwayne Wade. Because um, the problem with Wade starting before is that he was next to Derrick Rose, and that's just death to your shooting. But if you have Isaiah Thomas – Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Kevin Love, and DeAndre Jordan, that's that's a heck of a lineup. Uh, I don't know if it's pushed Golden State good, but uh, it's it's certainly closer than they are right now. How about the way Dwayne uh, Wade's been playing over their 10-game win streak, though? He's been pretty dang good. Yeah, and I'll, that, that's, that's maybe an argument for not starting him because he's been awesome off the bench. And if you run the numbers on the two-man lineup of Kyle Korver and Dwayne Wade, it's absurd. They're they're just destroying opponents when those two guys are on the floor. Um, so Dwayne Wade with some spacing, still pretty dang good. Next question is from Twitch Stevenson. Well, I, don't, I don't even know if we we didn't even wrap up the DeAndre Jordan question. Uh, are there actually oh, I mean, any teams that you could see him going to? I think this is so. That's like I'm torn on whether or not I would do it, but I think the Cleveland one makes the most sense to me. We've We've come back to this discussion several times in the last few months. It seems like everybody who is sort of on the trading block is a big man. And like coincidentally, it's also the hardest. Um, it's hardest to find anywhere to, to put a big man right now. <laughs> so, I mean, I think they'll at least entertain the idea of trading him. I, I don't know if there's any just surefire uh, fits for that. The one that I think would be hilarious is if the the Mavericks took a swing at him. I have no idea why the Mavericks would do that. I think I don't either. I just think it would be funny. I'd be curious to see if there's something to be worked out with the Bucks still at this point. Uh, if you build it around John Henson, I know they can't trade uh, a pick, but you do have DJ Wilson that you could dangle, and maybe just something around DJ Wilson. Use Rashad Vaughn and John Henson. Uh, that gets you somewhere. I don't even know if that makes the salaries match, but I would if think you, if you do something like that, you got to can Doc because he's not going to play any of those guys. The, yeah, the other thing was, could the Raptors decide to do it for a similar package that we had them offering for Marcus All in the last podcast, where we said Jonas Valanciunas, um, OG Ananobi, and then you include Siakam? Would yeah, that's make- kind of interesting, actually. Yeah. Because uh, he can I, play along a Abaka's basically like a big shooting guard at this point, right? So, so you can that would you be, can play those guys together, I think. And then you kind of have a choice between him and Nogueira because he'll be um, a free agent this year as well. The other thing, and this brings me to Enos Cantor, was if you're the Clippers and you could get something like Lance Thomas. Hernan Gomez and Doug McDermott, along with Enos Cantor's salary, would you give up DeAndre Jordan and Austin Rivers? Like, get off that salary, maybe even Austin Rivers and Lou Williams, uh, and then fodder. I I think would have to be kind of the deal. Like that would be if are the- we 
Are we at a point where that's a bad deal for New York? I can't believe I'm saying that. I honestly don't know, but here's my thing. Is Hernan Gomez isn't playing anyway? Um, and yeah. the Knicks are kind of just like, you know, it doesn't, I don't, I don't know. Like, are they sure that it seems like they want to compete now because they should be tanking and I'm going to be publishing something about this in the next couple of days. Uh, they should be tanking. Like this is just, they should be selling off Courtney Lee, even though they told them over the off season, they weren't going to do that. They should see if anyone's really intrigued by what Lance Thomas does at the four. You should be trading Doug McDermott, who has always tried on defense. And this season he's been kind of not terrible on defense through that effort. Kyle, and you have to worry about paying him in the summer. There's Kyle O'Quinn. Like, that's what they should be doing. If you're not going to do that, you could kind of help your salary situation a little bit and declog your big man rotation just a tad by bringing in DeAndre Jordan for the year. Lou Williams' contract is expiring, and you get to reevaluate the situation at season at season's end, I guess. Uh, it's just, it would be interesting to me. I don't know if the Clippers do it because Lou Williams has been fantastic. And yeah, you, he's you can, been amazing. You can include Austin Rivers' salary in that deal and it would still work. Um, like you could do Jordan, Austin Rivers, and Juwan Evans for Cantor, Thomas, McDermott, and Hernan Gomez. I, if I'm the Knicks, I'm at the point where I don't know if I do that. If it was Lou Williams instead I, of Austin Rivers, I, I would probably do it. And then the Clippers, they have to make... Um, they don't have to worry about their cap situation at, in either of those deals. They do have to worry about the roster situation. They'd have to create one one roster spot somewhere, which I don't think would be incredibly difficult when you look at some of the guys that they, they have in tow. At this, if I'm the Knicks at this point, I might rather have the 25-year-old who looks like he's finally turning a corner for the first time in his career. Even though you have Kristaps Porzingis on your roster and that well, Cantor's it, never going to be as good as Cantor's been this year. Is he ever going to be a guy that like truly, wholly helps you on defense? Well, he's helping him this season. Relative to I mean, twenty-five, isn't super young, but it's still still two or three years left to improve. And I, how how much longer is DeAndre Jordan under contract? It's, I don't I don't feel like he fits Kristaps better than Cantor does. I mean, that would be a, a hell of a rim protecting duo. I would think that's and true. That's, he's he's switchier. Daninas Cantor, and I mean, look, Cantor's been good, and he's younger, and this, to me, isn't necessarily about, oh, let's get DeAndre Jordan with the intent of then maxing him out this summer when he opts out. If he opts out, then you have additional cap flexibility um, to maybe where you could create some room and go after someone younger, or maybe you're able to get him at a smaller average annual salary. I I, I mean, the Joakim Noah being on the roster makes it weird, but they still need... 25 is a fine age, but I I still don't think... Cantor's ceiling is any higher than this and now I think we're at the point where you could say yeah the Knicks just ride it out this contract like they don't maybe you shouldn't be trading him if it takes a sweetener but that would just be something interesting to me to monitor because the the biggest intrigue from my end would be that wow uh, DeAndre Jordan could come off the books this summer and that would just open up a new world of possibilities for a team that really doesn't have a lot of financial flexibility in the summer period, and that might be a path to them getting some. Uh, I I honestly don't know. I think the actual path they should follow is kind of tearing this thing down. But if they're serious about this season, uh, that it would be something I would at least consider. Especially when you look at Hernan Gomez not playing, and I think there's still a lot of intrigue around him because of his passing ability. Uh, and then McDermott has been good this year. He's on an expiring contract essentially, though. So uh, it would be something worth considering. That was my like out there in terms of what teams might be interested in him and I don't you said it if the Knicks 
the Knicks could trade turn down that deal, and they, I believe they would if Austin Rivers was involved. But I, it's just I don't know. I would be super interested to see it. I think for me, uh, just to wrap this up, I think the one that makes the most sense is the Cavs deal. And I don't even know if I would do that. So I can't believe Long you would even think short, about something that would include the Nets pick for a deal. If the Cavs are going to get Paul George for the Nets pick, I just which, I just like the way that Jordan fits in that lineup. I think you would have to, if you're the Cavs, you would consider like trading Thompson and your own pick. I don't know that I would trade the Nets pick. I don't know. It's one of the only things that. Um, it's only one of the only things that would intrigue me into like giving that Nets pick up because, like I said last time, I was I was on that side of you have to keep it. Would you um, Would you still trade it for Paul George? I don't know. Paul George has been really hard for me to figure out for the last couple of years. I oh think he's God. probably been OKC's best player this season. Um, I've never thought he was as good as everyone else. I, I think he's like clearly a top twenty player. Um, but I'm just I'm. Do you give up the Nets pick for Paul George and then just walk him, watch him go to the Lakers next year? I think you do it under the guise that he's gonna stay if LeBron James stays. Like if you're gonna, to me, if you're gonna swing for the fence, you're more partial to like giving up that pick for 29 year old DeAndre Jordan, who might help you a little bit when facing the Warriors, but you wouldn't give it up, or you're not sure you'd give it up for a 27 year old Paul George, who most definitely helps you against the Warriors. I just that t- see. I'm not. I'm not one of those people who necessarily thinks that, though. You don't think Paul like, George helps them? I don't think he. I don't think he pushes them that much closer to the Warriors. <laughs> but Jordan does. Like the. You, but here's my thing. The you're saying the distance between DeAndre Jordan and Tristan Thompson is that big that you're willing to give up a top seven pick to get to get it. Not. I mean, it, I'll think about it. <laughs> but you like I said, I'm. But you are more inclined to do it you're, to do that trade than to get Paul George. I think so. Because I don't. <laughs> wow. I mean, and you probably I, if if I Oklahoma like City Paul goes George just not as much as most people, and and again, it's the specter of the Lakers that really worries me. Well, and what's more intriguing though for me for Paul George is not only because he's this like sized wing that to me helps you a great deal defensively against the Warriors. He'll be fantastic offensively next to LeBron. Basically, everybody is. And he doesn't have that luxury in Oklahoma City right now next to Melo and Russell Westbrook. Uh, necessarily, we can trust that they're going to find you. And he stands off so much, particularly in crunch time. He just looks very Think passive. about how much DeAndre Jordan would help that offense, too. Like, maybe the best rim runner in the league. And then you've, okay. you've got defenses sucking in to guard him. And now you have Kevin Love. LeBron James, Isaiah Thomas, Kyle Korver, all wide open along the perimeter. Okay, but now think about Tristan Thompson in that same role, but Paul George is one of the people wide open on the perimeter because the Thunder aren't going to want Tristan Thompson. I think you can stay home on shooters with Tristan Thompson rolling to the rim. I don't know. I mean, especially when you don't have to give – like if the Thunder get to a point where they would trade Paul George, which I think a lot of us, including you and I, still assume the Thunder will be fine – but if they get to a point where they're moving Paul George, they're not going to want long-term salary back for him necessarily. They would take the Nets pick and Channing Frye and Amon Shumpert probably just to get oh, that I, pick. I think it's a no. It would be a no-brainer for OKC. I'm I'm honestly just genuinely shocked that you think DeAndre, <laughs> DeAndre Jordan would be a better addition for the Cavs than Paul George. Teach them I like good rim runners, man. I like uh, a team that might be able to beat the Warriors. 
<laughs> All right, let's go to Sean Stevenson's question. At Twitch Stevenson, uh, T-W-I-T-C-H-S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N. How does Marcus Smart's net rating keep going up as his shooting percentage dives into the pits of hell? Uh, <laughs> so he has taken 945 threes in his career. Um, 389 players have taken at least that many threes. Marcus Smart's true shooting percentage for his career ranks 387th out of 389. So in the conversation for one of the worst shooters to ever play the game, or to at least play it in the three-point era. Um, Marcus Smart is like the ultimate example of there, there's more to the game than scoring, at least for an individual player. Uh, one of the worst shooters of all time, and yet, as Sean points out, he still has managed to be a positive for the Celtics for, for most of his career. He's a great defender. He's a pretty good playmaker and distributor, um, solid rebounder for a guard. Uh, he, he literally does everything but score. And I still, I mean, this is coming from someone who thinks that shooting is is the most important skill in the game of basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sort of a conundrum for me personally, but I, I cannot deny the fact that he has helped the Celtics be a better team for most of his career. Uh, to me, he's just too good defensively, like for his numbers to be bad when you look at the on-off with the Celtics, uh-huh. it also helps that you have to look at some of his, and not even this year, but you have to look at some of the lineups that he's most used in. Like, you just have so much talent. I mean, this year, his most used lineup includes Jalen Brown, Horford, Irving, and Tatum. So, base, essentially four shooters and him. That works. And because he can play some in the post on offense, you get to treat him like a big, uh, and you have some spacier bigs, uh, where it's you don't have to compromise the number of shooters that are on the floor just because Morris is there. It, it still has more to do defensively, uh, in my opinion, obviously. Yeah. But even when the, the some of the Celtics' offensive line, it's a straight fire with him on the floor because uh, he'll look to push sometimes, even though he'll be a little bit reckless in the pick and roll. And the stuff he does on the defensive end, like that just translates to easy offense for his team. Like if he's poking the ball away or grabbing these defensive rebounds mm-hmm. and can throw an outlet pass, I don't think it's that hard to see why he's a valuable player for them. And here's – do you know what makes him even more valuable to me? He in, he's been to the playoffs three times in his career. He's attempted 118 threes through 28 games. He's averaging 4.2 or excuse me, he's averaging 4.9 three-point attempts per 36 minutes in the playoffs. His career three-point percentage in the postseason is 36.4. And if you That's crazy. if you isolate just the last two um playoff campaigns where he's played in at least 5 games and cleared by far and away the 150 minute plateau, he's shooting 13 uh, excuse me he's doing 38.1 percent on 5.23s per 36 minutes that is one of the great anomalies in NBA <laughs> history and he's shooting uh, by the way he's still shooting under 40 percent overall his field goal percentage was 35.6 percent through those last two playoff campaigns because he's just shooting a disastrous 32.6 percent on two pointers and I, uh, that's wow. just I find that that's just a such a weird aberration to me, but if he's going to all of a sudden turn into this shot maker from beyond the arc in the playoffs, but more so it's just, it's just his defense. And I don't think it's that hard to see why he's valuable to a team, even when he's not 
uh, scoring even somewhat. And it's it's different from, I guess a good comparison would be Andre Roberson because they play different positions. So one, Smart's going to have an opportunity to impact the game as a facilitator where Roberson's never asked to do that. I, I don't think any of us are going to say Smart's a great passer, but he's averaging 6.2 po- assists per 36 minutes. I was, I was just going to ask you uh, if you knew who leads the team in points per minute. Or, I mean, point uh, assists per minute. Uh, that would be Marcus Smart. Smart. So, yeah. I, like, that, that's always going to help. And just because of uh, some of the – I don't want to use the word gambles, but because some of the things he does defensively, like he's just such a good defensive rebounder for his position that there's going to be extra offensive opportunities because of what he does that allows the Celtics to push the ball or get out in transition. And I think that's why it's so easy to see him – or to look at these on-off splits or to look at how he impacts the Celtics and be like, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense than it would be for other shooting-challenged wings who don't necessarily, one, have the ball in their hands as much, or two, aren't exceptional defensive rebounders for their position. Last thing I'll say on this is uh, Marcus Smart is a point forward. I've even come close to saying he's a power forward at times. He guards people in the post, and he's, yeah. they've run intermittent post-ups for him as well. I'm, I'm with you. All right, our last question for the day. Jose Samaniego at Posterizer23. Um, with players going to be available for trade at the December 15th mark, what moves do you see coming? And before you... Uh, take off on that. I'm just going to read a couple snippets from Hoops Hype's uh, list of trade rumors. Yahoo Sports talked about Derek Favors, and I guess a bunch of teams pursued him uh, at the last trade deadline. Uh, Marcus Saul has been talked about a lot. Um, Nerlens Noel is in here. <laughs> see, Nikola Miritich. Um, Mike McGraw said that, that Miritich won't say if he requested a trade, but he makes it clear he's anxious to play for the Bulls again. Um, DeAndre Jordan, who we already talked about. Jaleel Okafor is on here. So there are certainly some names. The one, the, the, the one on Okafor is interesting, so I'll actually read that one. Um, this is from Woj. He said Colangelo's holding out the possibility that Okafor's $5 million salary could be packaged as part of a bigger deal. Uh, before the deadline, even if he can't find a singular move involving Okafor. So anyway, I threw out some names. Um, maybe you have some others, but what, what kind of deals do you think are possible? Favors is interesting to me because he's playing really well, but if I'm the Jazz, I don't want to re-sign him this summer. I, I, even, mm-hmm. if it's, even if he takes the mid-level, do you want to give Derek Favors, let's say, four years and $35 million or $40 million, whatever it comes out to with raises? I don't necessarily... That's not an immovable contract once you sign it, but you have Rudy Gobert, and you've kind of seen by this point that you're better off with these stretchier fours. I just don't know where you send him. The Celtics, if they had any real salary matching fodder, would be super interesting. Are the Sixers willing to throw the Jazz Amir Johnson and then something like as a like a mini sweetener um, just so that they can use Derek Favors off the bench a little bit? I, I honestly don't know, but he would be a name... That's interesting to watch. Uh, one that you didn't name, Tyreek Evans of the Memphis Grizzlies would mm. is someone I think should be moved. They don't have his bird rights, and they're not at a point where they should be. If, let's say they get access to the full mid-level this summer, which is possible. I'm don't I, They shouldn't be paying him that. And he's been playing fantastic basketball. He's been great. I think he's 
he's currently 10th in the NBA in offensive box plus minus. Right. He's, he's been fantastic out of the pick and roll. He's shooting the lights out. He's been pretty good finishing at the rim. He gives you some switchability at the defensive end. I, you're you're not going to be able to afford him, most likely, after this year. And no, he's not going to net you anything exceptional on the trade market because he is an expiring contract and he's only making um, biannual exception money. But I mean, there are some things you could do to like – like him and Brandon Wright's expiring deals are going to total uh, over $9 million. So you're looking at being able to take back an impact player if it's possible or just some additional flexibility there. Uh, I don't. You're not going to get a first round pick for him unless someone's really desperate uh, because the, his bird rights aren't coming with the trade. But they should be moving him, and I don't, I would love to see him on Charlotte because they're still uh, their offense has been a little bit better over the last seven to ten games when Kemba Walker's on the bench. But they're still looking for that guy to run the offense in Walker's absence. And when you're not going to play Malik Monk as much, and when Nicholas Batum, the offensive numbers haven't been great when he's kind of running the show. On his own, it'd be interesting to see Tyreek Evans in that role. So uh, he would be another name to keep an eye on. And uh, the last one I'll bring up um, before you go is if the Thunder just don't recover, I would be interested to see if the Portland Trailblazers would still be uh, intrigued by trying to acquire Carmelo Anthony again and seeing if a package could be yeah, struck that would be interesting. there. Because their offense hasn't been great statistically, and they have one of the three best defense in the NBA right now. Maybe they're a team especially with the way they goad opponents into mid-range shots, and they're just not letting anybody score at the rim this year. Maybe they can cover for his deficiencies better than most, and we've seen the Thunder have done it. They they have one of the three best defenses in the NBA right now as well. So uh, th- that's just another name to keep an eye on. I'll throw Paul George into there because if the Thunder haven't recovered, I think you need to at least start thinking about that. You, you already know yeah. Russell Westbrook's under lock and key, so why not? try and get out of a situation and get something, anything, regardless of what it is, especially if it could be that Nets pick from the Cavaliers. I think this trade deadline is going to be interesting uh, because objectively that was the craziest offseason we've ever had uh, in terms of, or the NBA has ever had in terms of player movement. So I don't know if that means uh, more craziness at the deadline, less craziness at the deadline. Uh, just because you know so many guys have already moved, I don't I don't know what other huge moves are out there. Um, Favors is I'm really torn on this one. Um, I think he would be really good if they if they went back to the role that he had the, at the end of last season in the playoffs, where he starts with Gobert, uh, but he only plays like 10 to 12 minutes as a power forward, and the rest of his minutes come as the backup five. Um, I, I think the way you maximize both of those guys is at center with a ton of shooting. Uh, one of the reasons Gobert wasn't really Gobert lineups weren't really working this season is because they weren't they weren't playing him with a ton of spacing. Um, so they need to find a way to get spacing around him. And um, obviously, you can you can clear that up pretty easily if you just trade favors um, and start one of the the the, the floor spacers. At the four, Jarebko has been amazing since uh, Gobert went down. He's shooting 50% from three, averaging almost double figures uh, since Gobert went down. Uh, but I also think that Favors is an incredible option as a backup. If that's your backup center, I, I think he would just feast on second units. So that's a tough call for me. I, it wouldn't surprise me if they are at least entertaining offers. It sounds like maybe they did last season too. Um, the only two guys that I think 
kind of have to be moved. Well, there's only one that I think has to be moved, and I think that's that's Julio Okafor. Um, he's not even with the team right now. I think they've got to figure out <laughs> a resolution to that that situation uh, sooner than later. Um, I almost think Meritich is in that have to be moved conversation too. He's his role is gone. I, I, there's no way they can go back to him after what Laurie Markkinen's shown in the first quarter of the season. Um, obviously, there's some tension between Portis and Miritich. Uh, when he spoke to the media the other day, it, it seemed like he he wanted nothing to do with talking about Portis, and I don't blame him. Um, that's not the kind of thing that just blows over if, if somebody breaks your face. Um, so I think I think those are the and those aren't splashy moves like a lot of what we saw this summer. But I, if I had to pick two guys that I think could be moved, uh, it's those two and and. Maybe not coincidentally, I think the Bulls might be the best spot for Okafor. Yeah. Uh, even the Hawks now with all their big man injuries, it would be interesting to see who you yeah. look for there. And maybe then, maybe they the Nets are kind of interesting to me for him too. The Nets are just going to be like – they're going to become a hub for like these career reinventions. Yeah. Just, give, me, give me your young guy that didn't pan out with you, and we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw a trade at you right now for Marcus All, and I want to know what you think. And actually, it's a Tyreek Evans trade. So – uh, Marcus All, Andrew Harrison, and Tyreek Evans to the Washington Wizards for, and this has to happen uh, December fifteenth when Evans's free agent restriction is lifted for Gortat, Jason Smith, Sadoransky, and Kelly Oubre Jr. And maybe you could throw a second round pick to the Grizzlies. And that works, cap wise. Yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat if I was Washington. I meant for Memphis. I don't know if you're going to get a player with more. How, how many of those guys? Um, yeah, Ubre's been awesome. Or he, I mean, I, I still have pretty high hopes for him. Are, are the rest of those expiring contracts? Smith is not. He'll have a year left after this one. Gortat, a year left after this one. Sadoransky, a year left after this one. is going to be extension eligible this year. Um, Did they save any money, Memphis, like in the long run? They're giving up $27 million and bringing back twenty three point five. Um So, I mean, you're getting out from under Gasol's deal a year early, essentially. Okay, so that's kind of what I was asking. After, after this one. Um, the, my concern would actually be for the Wizards a little bit just because you're getting yeah, Tyreek you're getting Tyreek Evans, who's I think he helps you a lot, but because he's going to be a better creator than Kelly Oubre Jr., uh, won't be the defender, obviously, but uh, he really helps for those minutes because Scott Brooks, when Scott Brooks likes to bench both be on wall, but you're not getting his bird rights. So then it becomes tough to keep it. Yeah, their salary cap sheet would be pretty tough after that deal. But I, I, I mean, that's a that's a deal that makes them. Um, I mean, def- interesting they, they would be in the this season yeah. for sure. I, I, yeah, I don't know how I'm trying to put this, but definitely like near the top of the Eastern Conference if they're not already. But yeah, that's that's really interesting to me. Um. Anyone else on the uh, that trade question before we wrap this up? No, I think I'm good. All right. That was another successful mailbag, if I do say so myself. Um, if you want to throw more questions at us, talk to us about the podcast, you can talk to Dan at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. The show's at Hardwood Knox. NBA Math is at NBA underscore math. Again, um, few more hours to get in on the uh, t-shirt contest if you send screenshots that prove that you rated reviewed and subscribed to the show you'll be entered to to win one of those cool design t-shirts from nba math um 
if you haven't done that, or it, I mean, even if you don't want to enter the contest, we want you to subscribe to the show. Obviously, that helps us. Ratings help us. Uh, telling your friends, just you know, some word of mouth would be great. Um, until next time, we leave you with the shout out to Kyle Anderson, Bino Udri, and the superlatives in my intro. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, wah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at you, savings coming at you. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Five-hour tea with caffeine from Green Tea Leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea. Caffeine from Green Tea Leaves. Release your natural sight. From the makers of five-hour energy. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.